It is a blessing to be before you this Lord's Day morning. Let me just say, before we look to God's Word, thank you for the warm reception that you have given to my family and I. We have felt well-loved and warmly received, uh, especially last week in the installation service and throughout the week, even though we had many miles to travel, um, God was with us and we are grateful to be back. It is good to be among you once again this Lord's Day morning. I trust that this week has been marked by counting your blessings and naming them one by one and recognizing the blessings of God upon us. This morning we are looking to a text in the book of Philippians. I recognize that some of you have been going through a Sunday school class now for 13 week, weeks on the book of Philippians, so if you're part of that class, I trust that this is a good review for you and it will instruct us from God's Word. <clears throat> a few years ago, when we still had many children at home, we began the rather ambitious task um, I set out and had hoped for our whole family to memorize the whole book of Philippians. I wish I could tell you that we were successful in that endeavor, however, we were not. I also wish I could say that we had retained the scripture that we had memorized at one time, but we have not. However, we did memorize the first chapter, and one thing that sunk into me as I memorized that and encouraged my children to do the same was the sense that there was something about, especially that first chapter, that where the gospel was just front and center throughout that chapter, that Paul was all about the gospel. And if you do a quick word search on this first chapter, you'll see that in the ESV that the word gospel appears five times in the text, yet the whole idea permeates the chapter and really throughout the whole book. And when you think about Paul and his dramatic conversion, his call to ministry, his encounters with those who despise the gospel, if you remember that he was imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, then you'll begin to understand his passion for the gospel. But the gospel is not something just for the Apostle Paul. It's not something just in the pages of Scripture. It should be something that's very real to us. It should make a difference in how we live. It should call us to new obedience. And that's what we want to look at this morning. The reading God's Word should inflame our desire to love, live, and tell the gospel to others. So this passage deals with the implications of the gospel what it looks like in our lives, what it means to be citizens in the kingdom of God. We'll read our text, but before we do, let us go to the Lord and ask his blessing upon the reading and preaching of his holy word. Let us pray. Great God, we come before you. We are needy people. We need your word. We need instructed through your word. And Lord, we stand in awe that you, the creator of all worlds, have given us your word, that you have spoken to us in and through your word, that your word is, is living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So, Heavenly Father, we pray that you, by your spirit, would do your work through your word this morning. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We'll pick up in the middle of verse 18. If, 
If, it, if you have a Bible similar to mine, you may find that there's a break in the paragraph there where we pick up in the middle of verse 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayer and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but will with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, this, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. To, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And our text begins with verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Amen. And we praise God that He has spoken to us in His holy and inerrant Word. My wife and I have been blessed with five sons, and over the course of the years in three different states, each of my sons have in some way been involved in Boy Scouts. Now, I recognize the Boy Scouts of America has greatly erred from their founding over a hundred years ago. Most recently in, in Texas, we were blessed with a Christian troop that still held the values and even more conservative values than the Boy Scouts of America were founded upon at the time of their founding. But my point is not to explain the Boy Scouts, but only to reference this, that if you are going to achieve the highest rank in Boy Scouts, that of Eagle uh, Scout, you have to do these things they call merit badges. Four of those merit badges have to do with citizenship, and they deal with what it means to be a citizen in a particular body, whether that's the world or the community or the nation, and most recently they have one called citizenship in society. They do not have one titled, as, our, as we've titled the sermon this morning, Citizenship in the Kingdom. And if you've been in this church very long, and if you've studied your Bible very long, you recognize that citizenship in the kingdom of God is not based upon merit. It is based upon mercy. It is based upon God's mercy to us in Christ when we are dead in our sins. It's completely upon God's mercy. But the sermon this morning is not about how to enter the kingdom of God. If, if you don't know what it means to be part of God's family, if you don't know what it means to be part of the kingdom of God, I invite you to come to myself or, or Billy or one of the elders after the service so that we can explain what it means to come into, to repent of your sins and accept Christ as your Savior. 
This sermon this morning is about what it means to be citizens in the kingdom, what it means, what God calls us to as members of this community, the kingdom of God. We'll consider our text under three headings. I think you have it in your, in your notes, kingdom tenacity, kingdom unity, and kingdom suffering. Now, those are just titles um, I've, I've kind of rephrased this, and you might want to jot these three things down because they are imperatives. They are telling us what we should do, and this text does that this morning, and that is this. First of all, we should stand firm. Secondly, we should strive together, and finally, we should suffer well. Stand firm, strive together, and suffer well. The Apostle Paul has finished this familiar passage in which he had previously talked about living is, is to Christ's glory, and it would be gain for him if he were to die and to go with, to be with Christ. He's been reminding them of this dilemma and how he's torn between being at home in heaven with Christ, and yet he sees the responsibility and the need for his ministry to continue. But then he turns his attention to them as the people of God, and he says this, and you notice how this, this passage begins in verse 27. The first word is only. If you have the NIV, it says this. It says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's, he's giving them admonition. He's giving them instruction. He says that whether he's able to come to them or not, here's his expectation of this group of believers. Now, let me say there's a difference between Christian duty and simple mere moralism. This is not salvation by works that Paul is preaching that I'm proclaiming to you. Paul has in no way forsaken the message that he's consistent in proclaiming throughout his writings, that salvation is by grace alone based upon the work of Christ for us. It is only by mercy, as we've already said, that any of us are saved. However, the apostle is consistent in his writing that there are implications to the grace that we have been shown in Christ because we've been brought into God's family by the free grace and mercy of God. It will make a difference in how we live. There is such a thing as Christian duty. And here he uses language that the Philippians would have understood. The word that he uses there in verse 27 that he uses to call them to live in this way is the same root word as the word for citizen. That's why we've chosen the, the title for this sermon that we have. Philippi was a colony of Rome, and they had certain rights and responsibilities as citizens of Rome. The word simply means to live as a citizen in a free state. Now, many of you, probably most of you in this room, are citizens of the United States. Some of you may be citizens or came from other countries. Some of you may hold dual citizenship. However, as believers in Christ, we should recognize that we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. We are part of the family, and our permanent and eternal citizenship is in heaven. In fact, Paul speaks elsewhere in Ephesians 1 of being seated in the heavenly places, and he, he tells us that our citizenship is so sure that he speaks as a few, of a future reality in the present tense, saying that it's already happening. Even though we haven't seen it, even though it's not completely fulfilled for us, we are citizens of heaven. 
So if we're citizens of Christ's kingdom, how then ought we to live? He says, first of all, that we should stand firm. We should have kingdom tenacity. Tenacity is that ability to hold on when things get rough. It's persistence. It's determination. Paul often uses imagery of of a war or an athletic race to describe the Christian life, and it takes perseverance to run that race. Too often, I think, we become discouraged in our Christian life because we, we seem to think that the Christian life should be easy. And yes, there is great blessing to walking with Christ and to following Christ. Yet Jesus said, if any man would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. We recognize that there is sacrifice, and we recognize that the invitation to follow Christ is really an invitation to come and die, to set aside ourselves, to seek to glorify Christ and put Him as first and foremost. Paul said it so eloquently in Galatians 2.20, for I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I live by the Son of God who loved me, and, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So living in a way that is worthy of the gospel recognizes that we're in a war, that we should live as committed soldiers, as those who follow Christ and seek to persevere in the battle. We must realize that we have a real opponent who is at war with our souls, and we're called to the trenches. We're called to the front lines. It's a call to courageous, strenuous Christianity. We're called to be steadfast and bold, but we're not in this alone. We're also called to kingdom unity. We're called not only to stand firm, but we're called to strive together, to work together. That doesn't mean we strive with one another. That means we work together for a common cause with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, our text says. We do it with one mind and one goal. Christians should be like-minded. That doesn't mean we're all alike. If we look around, we notice that we're different. We have different likes and dislikes, perhaps different skin colors, different cultures, different food we enjoy. We're not called all to be the same, but we should be of one mind and one spirit in the important things. We're members of the family of God, and as members of a family, there should be a family resemblance to us. Our overarching desire and goal should be to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, Paul is not saying that we're just a bunch of automatons marching in lockstep never thinking our own thoughts. No, the the church is a group of diverse individuals with different talents and taste, different strengths and weaknesses, different fears and anxieties, different levels of sanctification, different tendencies to sin. Yet, they're a group of people who show genuine love one to another. It does mean speaking the truth, but it means speaking the truth in love And loving one another should be the overarching characteristic of the people of God. I saw a Ford truck commercial, perhaps you've seen it, where it speaks, talks about the differences of people that own Ford trucks, and it it has this tagline at the end, and it says that if tough was a gene, all Ford truck owners would be related. 
Well, I say to you that if love was a genetic characteristic, it should be present in every cell of the believer. Jesus said, by this shall all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. It means loving those who are difficult to love. And sometimes those are members of our own household. And sometimes we are difficult to love as well. It means putting the needs of others before your own. Jesus said, if you want to be first, you must be the servant of all. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about the Christian life, living the Christian life together. I don't agree with everything that Bonhoeffer wrote, but he had some good things to say about this. And he had seven principles for eradicating selfish ambitions from the church. Listen to these, if you will. He says, first of all, we should hold our tongues, refusing to speak uncharitably about a Christian brother. Number two, he says that we should cultivate the the humility that comes from understanding that we, like Paul, are the greatest of sinners and can only live in God's sight by His grace. Thirdly, he says this, listen long and patiently so that they will understand their fellow Christians' needs. Did you hear that? Listen long and patiently Not so you just hear them out and so they'll be quiet, but so that you understand their need. Number four, refuse to consider their time and calling so valuable that they cannot be interrupted to help with the unexpected needs, no matter how small or menial. In other words, our time and calling. We should not consider our time and calling so valuable that we can't be interrupted to listen to someone else. Number five, he admonishes us to bear the burden of our brothers and sisters in the Lord, both by preserving their freedom and by forgiving their sinful abuse of that freedom. He says also, declare God's Word to fellow believers when they need to hear it. And you know what? We need to hear it a lot. And finally, understand that Christian authority is characterized by service and does not call attention to the person who performs that service. That's, that's a high bar of things that he sets out there, but they're worthy of our consideration and our prayer. Kingdom unity is standing together in love with one mind and one goal. We stand together in opposition, opposition against Satan and his forces. And we're not just on the defensive. Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. We're called to advance the gospel together. When soldiers of old would go into battle, they would seek to lock their shields to form an impenetrable defense against the enemy so that they could advance, so that they could bring the war to the enemy. So, do you see your brother or sister in Christ as a fellow soldier, one on whom you can depend in battle? Are they one whom you see as a helper in your Christian walk? I trust that that is true, and I trust that you would seek to to see your brothers and sisters in Christ in such a way. I remember a time when I was in college, and I was traveling with the college choir. This is many years ago. I was at a Christian college, and they would send the college choir out over spring break, and we would go to help raise money for the school, and I enjoy singing, and, and so we would go, and we would sing in these churches. Well, you have a bunch of young people on a bus, and everything's well and good, but if somebody gets sick, that's very complicated, and that happened to uh, a friend of mine and myself. We were assigned to, to be uh, partners, and we would go and stay in, in people's homes, and um, 
So he got sick, and we both got the stomach bug, and so they isolated us in a motorhome. Unfortunately, the motorhome at one of the churches where the rest of the choir was singing and we were convalescing from being sick, this, this uh, motorhome got stuck in the mud, and they had to pull us out with a tractor. And I remember we were sick at our stomachs. This thing was rocking back and forth, and, and my buddy Joe grabbed my, my arm, and he said, Jay, he says, if we're going to get through this, we're going to have to stick together. And we need to have that kind of mindset that, that, that we need each other, that we're called to unity, we're called to love one another, we're called to look out for one another, we're called to bring God's Word to bear upon one another. We need one another if we're going to go through this battle called the Christian life. We're at war with the enemy of our souls, so I pray that unity and community would mark our efforts as the people of God as we take the good news to the world. Now, you might be wondering this morning I'm, and think, I'm just an ordinary person. I'm or, just an ordinary mom or dad. How do I strive together for the gospel? But that's precisely the point. You're striving for the gospel as you teach your children God's Word. You're striving for the gospel as you bring your children to church so that they can hear the preaching of the Word and sit under the instruction of godly teachers. You're striving for the gospel when you seek to be a witness on the job by caring for your coworkers and understanding their needs and praying for them. You're striving for the gospel when you give of your tithe, when you give of your means, when you support missions, when you seek to encourage a brother or sister from the Word. We're called to do this together with interdependence, not independence. We're not lone rangers. We're called to lean upon one another and to pray for one another and love one another. He's calling us to work together with one mind and one goal. And I will say I, I have, have appreciated so much what I've seen so far here at this church of, of how you do life together. I love the home fellowship groups where you come together regularly to meet with one another and, and pray together and lift one another up in prayer. What a blessing that is. And we need each other so much. We're called to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Our text tells us to stand firm, to strive together, and it calls us to suffer well. Now, there's three things I want to say here concerning suffering, and those are these, the reality of suffering, the camaraderie of suffering, and the gift of suffering. Suffering is not something that I don't think any of us like to think about too much. I don't feel like I'm an authority on it because I don't think I suffer well. And yet, Scripture talks about it. It talks frankly about it. It helps us to see what it does for us. And, and I have suffered some in my life, not nearly as much as many others, not many as much as, uh, nearly as much as, as some of you, and I don't even know you all very well, but I know that, that there is suffering represented in the congregation here this morning. But suffering, there is a reality to suffering. Sometimes I think that, that we in our Western culture in the 21st century can think about suffering and think about that it's something that, that Christians endured many centuries ago or Christians on the other side of the world endure. And that's true, they do. But suffering is a reality for all of us. And recent years has seen much more suffering than, than previous years. Suffering is a present reality for many believers around the world, but I think that in America, we need to be prepared to suffer 
because even though we still enjoy much freedom, we see those freedoms eroding, and we see the popularity of, of the Christian ethic being eroded. And it, it may cost us to stand for truth. We should never get so comfortable to or see the suffering that Paul speaks of in the Bible as being foreign to us, so much so that we're surprised when suffering for the cause of Christ comes to us. So it seems in, inevitable that suffering is coming. It's a reality for many, and it may become a greater reality for us soon. But we don't suffer alone. There's a camaraderie of suffering. You're in good company if you are a sufferer. This is the main thrust of Paul's message. Look with me at verse 30. He reminds the Philippians that their suffering, their struggle, is alongside of his struggle. They are engaged in the same conflict, it says. The book of Acts in chapter 14 reminds us of an occasion in which Paul had been stoned and dragged out of the city, and shortly thereafter, he sought to strengthen the souls of the disciples. And it says that he was encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. While the Philippians were suffering for their faith, they were in great company. And that brings us to the final subpoint, and perhaps the most perplexing to us, and that is the gift of suffering. How can suffering be a gift? Well, Scripture calls us that, calls it that. It doesn't mean that God is the author of, of sin. We see that uh, distinction and that clarified for us in the final chapter of Genesis where Joseph said, as for you, you meant evil against me, speaking of his brothers. And then he continues, he says, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God, Joseph saw that God used the suffering in his life to preserve the people of God. And yet, even though his brothers meant evil against him, God used those circumstances for the good of his people. It does mean that suffering is part of the way the world works. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, he said, I have overcome the world. Perhaps it was this teaching in the minds of the apostles in Acts 5 when they were beaten, and Luke tells us there that they rejoiced, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. One of the early church fathers writing under the name of Ambrosiaster wrote this about this paradox of the gift of suffering. He said, he, meaning Paul, does not propose this distinction to any but true lovers of Christ. His paradoxical reasoning is that this gift is given to you for Christ. This means that God the Father gives this special gift to lovers of His Son. Why? That their blessings might increase correspondingly through their participation in the suffering on Christ's behalf. Paul speaks as one who himself has received this gift. Let me, let me restate that, that one line. Their, their blessings might increase correspondingly through their participation on Christ's behalf. God is the ground of it all, and it is all for Christ. We're reminded here that Paul suffered and he is reminding the Philippians and us that they are suffering for the gospel. They're engaged in the same conflict in which they have seen him engaged. Paul counted it a privilege to suffer for Christ. Paul knew that it helped him to know Christ. 
And I think that's where we need to focus our attention when we're in the midst of suffering, to say, Lord, teach me to know you. Teach me how this participation in suffering can conform me to the image of Christ. How can this suffering make me more like my Savior who suffered so much on my behalf? Despite the fact that we, myself included, typically see something suffering as something to avoid, if at all possible, our text tells us that it's something granted to us. It's given to us as a gift. I don't like that thought always. I confess. I don't always see it as a gift that I want or need, but God gives us the things that we need. It points out, our text points out that faith is a gift, and likewise, suffering is also a gift. Suffering gives us a sense of assurance that we belong to Christ. Suffering distinguishes the visible church. It shows us who the true believers are. Suffering matures us. Suffering reduces pride in our heart. Suffering keeps us from self-reliance. Suffering gives us opportunities to share Christ and it helps us to minister with compassion to others. If this is a struggle for you, as it is for most of us, what are we to do? Well, as with so many other things, we need to look to Christ. Look to Jesus who suffered for us. Those who know Christ best find it easiest to suffer for His gospel. We need to look to His suffering consider His pain, what He endured for sinners. We need to come back to Calvary. To, we need to reflect upon His death, His work, and the glory of His sacrifice on our behalf. I'm reminded of the, the great words of the hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful God, we thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we don't understand your ways, but Lord, we thank you that you have adopted us and brought us into your family. You have made us sons and daughters, and those that are in Christ have that distinction and have that family identity. And Lord, we ask, as your word calls us this morning, to be good citizens and exhibit the, the marks of good citizens in your kingdom. We pray that you would give us grace to do that. Lord, that, that we might strive together for the gospel, that we might stand firm in our faith, and that we might suffer well. Give us grace to do that, and may we in this and in all things look to Christ, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. In His name we pray, amen.